0: Welcome to a special episode of This Week in the CLE, the podcast from cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Normally, it's a podcast discussion of the news by the editors at cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer, but this is a special episode, one in which we're spending some time with a candidate for mayor. In this case, it's Justin Bibb. I'm Chris Quinn, and I am here with our chief political writer, Seth Richardson, who will conduct most of the interview. I'll lean in to interrupt from time to time, but this is a conversation between Seth and Justin. I welcome you both, and Seth, why don't you take it away?
1: Thanks, Chris. Justin, thank you so much for joining us. I'm going to go ahead and just hop right in. Uh, The city is currently seeing a surge in gun violence and other violent crimes. Uh, What policies would you enact as mayor to help curtail the spike in violence we've seen over the past year?
2: Well, Seth, uh, one of the first things we have to do is do a better job of using the current resources that we currently have right now uh, inside the, our police department. Currently, right now, we have more police per resident than Columbus, Dayton, Indianapolis, and Toledo. But the challenge we have is you know, 51% of our cops are walking the beat, and the other 49% are in desk jobs. I want to make that staffing allocation where 70% of our cops are walking the beat and 30% are are in desk jobs to ensure we have the right kind of presence at the neighborhood level to give voters and residents confidence that their communities are safe and secure. That's the first thing we gotta do. Secondly, we have to do the real hard work of rethinking what policing should look like because having a public safety only lens to these problems is not gonna change these issues long-term. So what I wanna do as the next mayor, uh, I wanna add a fourth option to 911 Around mental health, so we have the right response for the right call. And I wanna embed social workers and mental health professionals to join our first responders for nonviolent 911 calls so we can start to do the hard work of addressing the root causes of trauma and violence across our city. And then what you're seeing specifically in the fourth district through a pilot program, you know, in that district, the commander there is working hard to better connect the vice unit. With their homicide unit, we should be doing that across all of our five police districts so we can have the right intelligence and the right strategies to really target the top percent of violent crime uh, across the city.
0: So, uh, Justin, I was impressed when you were before our editorial board and you had at your fingertips the ratio of police to population for those other cities. It's an important measure. You you made a good point. Uh, On the other hand the there comes a time when uh geography matters too that cleveland has lost a lot of residents and a lot of neighborhoods have lost houses um and at some point the even though you don't have population in those areas you still need to patrol have you looked at the the converse of that the number of officers per square mile To see if we're also leading those cities in that?
2: Well, uh, I haven't looked at it at the uh, per square mile uh, ratio, but I'll give you an anecdote from what I heard uh, at the safety summit uh, in Ward 1 with Councilman Joe Jones. You know, in in District 4, uh, they only have about two zone cars per shift. And, you know, the 4th District is one of the largest districts inside the city of Cleveland. Uh, That allocation of staffing makes no sense to me. But we, on the converse, we have this issue where we're losing many of our officers due to attrition and retirements. And also a lot of our suburban peers are poaching our officers as well, too, because pay isn't competitive. I was talking to a sergeant uh, in War II a couple of weeks ago who told me uh, that uh, the equipment that they're using right now is nearly 10 years being outdated. Um, there's also the issue where the computers inside the zone car Uh, aren't connected to uh, the district command center. So if you want to file a police report, you have to still go down to district. You can't do some of that data uh, uh, entry inside the zone car. So we're losing time, which undermines the ability of our officers to have a high quality response time for important basic quality of life calls. And so, um, you know, Chris, I think this requires just a comprehensive approach where we're being more data driven, more thoughtful about, how do we better use our existing resources? But then I think long term, if you want to increase response times for those important basic quality of life calls, you know, this co-responder model, I think, can go a long way of doing that. You know, we did this in the city of Cleveland uh, between 2016 and 2018 in the second district through a pilot program with the Adams Board where they piloted a co-responder model and they found that roughly 37 percent of the 911 calls didn't require a response from two armed cops. And so that just shows you how, if we can be more thoughtful uh, and data-driven in terms of our approach to community uh, policing and also to uh, making sure we have the right intelligence resources to target the top 1% of violent crime across our city, we can make sure every neighborhood feels safe and secure.
1: We talk about shifting resources, right? And wanting 70% of officers, uh, you know, out there walking a beat or whatever. But at the same time, you know, we're losing officers either through retirement, attrition, going off to somewhere in the suburbs where the job is more attractive and recruiting hasn't exactly been, you know, great in the city of Cleveland as far as getting police officers. So, you know, I'm curious how you see being able to shift those kind of resources, Um, you know, especially when we are losing officers and we're unable to hire more officers? And how do you make, um, you know, a city of Cleveland police officer job attractive to candidates?
2: You know, Seth, it has to be a both and approach, in my opinion. Um, You know, going back to the comments I made about morale, you know, morale has not been this low in a long time inside the department. Uh, I think it all starts at the top with the culture change. Um, I intend to bring in a new police chief Uh, that shares my sense of urgency in terms of changing the culture that shares my sense of urgency around giving our officers the tools and resources they need you know to do good police work i saw that from my dad who who was a cop and uh, this is not an anti-police message but it's about how to create a competitive environment where officers can show up and do their job and do good police work and feel respected now at the same time uh, we need to do a better job of being more competitive with our uh, other municipalities across the region, and so looking at how do we, you know, have more competitive pay? How do we start, you know, cadet programs in, in high school to encourage, you know, you know, students inside CMSD to join our public safety forces, uh, so that way we can address the, the the talent issue of our officers not being reflective of the neighborhoods they're serving. And I think that 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 plays a large role in it. And I expect my police chief and safety director to join me in going to high schools, going to community centers, walking the streets to recruit officers inside our department. And I think having that visible, hands-on approach can go a long way to get the right kind of talent we need in place inside the department.
1: Do you foresee the you know your ideal chief of police coming from the city of Cleveland, or are you looking to do more of a national search for that?
2: Yeah, I think it should be both. You know, I know that there are a lot, there's a lot of great talent uh, inside the command staff right now. Uh, There are also uh, several former uh, commanders uh, who have left the department but are still well respected inside the department uh, that I've spoken with. But also nationally, you're seeing some uh, new talent emerge across the country as we think about how do you help cities, you know, in the Black Lives Matter movement. Where there's so much emphasis on racial justice, how do you have a police chief that can carry that mantle while also giving voters and residents the confidence that cops are going to show up when they call, but also respect their constitutional rights? And it's important that we find a chief that shares that vision and shares that sense of mission that I have as an ex-mayor, and that's what I intend to do.
1: So the city is going to get a pretty big windfall of federal one-time dollars coming in through some of the coronavirus relief um, acts passed by Congress. I want to know what your basic line-by-line plan is for spending that stimulus money from the federal government.
2: Yeah, well, well, Seth, I think, you know, before I kind of walk through line-by-line what some of my key priorities are around how I would spend some of that money, I think it's important to kind of get a sense of my principles around it, right? I think, number one, uh, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. Um, And it's important to look at existing uh, programs and initiatives and funding mechanisms that uh, have had success And how do we invest and scale what's been working. I think, secondly, uh, sustainability, right? Making sure that whatever investments we make can see a long-term ROI and can be sustainable over time. And then thirdly, uh, it's about capacity building. Um, You know, if, if I were mayor right now, I probably would have talked to every major bank and every major foundation to figure out how do we turn that $512 million into a couple billion so that we can really leverage this moment right now in our city. And I hope the current mayor and council are having those conversations because I haven't been privy to them if if they have been, but just to kind of get into the weeds more in terms of my basic priorities, number one, uh, neighborhood revitalization. Uh, We have to use this moment in time uh, to have the most inclusive comeback our city's history and we missed a moment coming out of the great recession in 08 where you saw the largest economic expansion really in american history and cities like pittsburgh indianapolis nashville really did the hard work to make sure they were well positioned as mid-sized cities we missed that moment and we can't miss that again and so making sure we give residents and our cdc's the tools to buy back the block and build our city back block by block is a critical Uh, And and so to me, that means focused, direct neighborhood investment in communities like Mount Pleasant, Union Miles and Buckeye and Clark Fulton. I get excited to see what the Cleveland Foundation is doing in Midtown, Opportunity Corridor, you know, working with Burton Bell Carr to ensure that we can leverage that investment and not just, you know, invest in an asphalt plant. Thank God that project got killed. Um, You know, I'm a bit disappointed that we're putting a new police headquarters over there. I wouldn't have done that if if I were mayor. I would have leveraged Opportunity Corridor as a food hub, but also as a catalyst to drive more investments in smart manufacturing, because that's an opportunity to give residents in those neighborhoods a job they can walk to to, to really build community wealth at the local level. And then and secondly, uh, doing what President Biden has called on for many mayors across this country right now is using these investments to better invest in community policing and doing the hard work of rethinking what policing should look like in our cities. You know, uh, using those dollars to fully fund violence interrupters all across our community. One program I want to bring to Cleveland is the Advanced Peace Initiative that they've done in Stockton and Sacramento, California. And in that program, uh, you saw a 20% reduction in gun-related homicides uh, due to the fact that they are reaching out to gang members and wrapping every resource they can around those gang members so they don't commit violent crime we can do that in cleveland with the right resourcing and then thirdly uh, city hall 2.0 now this is where i get really excited as someone who spent a large majority of their career working with mayors all across this country how do we finally bring cleveland to 2021 and you know upgrade our systems and technology so you can get a permanent line uh, you can start a business from your smartphone update our website so our parents and families can get access to a recreation uh, center schedule uh, and really make sure that we can use this moment to make make sure that we are bringing high quality basic city services to every resident across our city. Then lastly, uh, but certainly not least, you know, legacy uh, investments to solve some of these legacy issues we've had in our community, the digital divide. Now we are four or five years too late in solving this crisis with the digital divide. I'm excited to see the investment that Digital C just received with $20 million investment from uh, the Mandel Foundation and a few others. Uh, the city should be a partner in making sure we can connect every underserved neighborhood in the city with high-speed broadband. And then lastly, the lead paint crisis. I was just with the Lead Safe Coalition yesterday, and you know, as a next mayor, I intend to be a, a full-fledged partner in raising the capital they need. And making sure that, that the city of Cleveland puts in their fair share to fully fund an endowment to eradicate lead paint all across this city.
1: Well, it's interesting you brought up the digital divide. That was something <clears throat> I wanted to talk about yeah. later, but I'll go ahead yeah. and bring it yeah. up now. Yeah. How how exactly, you know, what does bridging the digital divide look like? We saw what happened during the pandemic, especially with you know kids in low-income neighborhoods who maybe didn't have access to broadband or Wi-Fi. What, what does bridging that digital
2: divide look like to you? Well, for me, it's more than just connecting a family to the internet, right? But it's about making sure that our families and children can really take advantage of what having access to high-speed broadband can do for their careers uh, and for education. Um, what we saw during this pandemic is that as a large majority of us were working from home, if you, didn't, if, you, if you didn't have a Zoom account to log online, you couldn't compete. Now you're also seeing basic things like updating your resume, applying for a job, getting access to basic health care through telehealth. You know, this is a, a economic and, and civil right, in my opinion. Uh, access to the Internet, it should be a utility. And so do we not only have to connect families and children to the Internet, but also, we, they need the digital readiness skills as well to compete in the marketplace. And so, you know, should we be embedding uh, coding programs in every in every school inside CMSD? Uh, should we have additional digital skills readiness programs for our adult learners inside CMSD and really have a more community and schools model? So it's those types of initiatives and, 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 and thinking I think we need to have to truly do the hard work of not only connecting families to the internet, but making sure that they have the digital readiness skills to compete in the highly competitive knowledge-based economy. Do you think any,
1: let me ask it this way. Uh, you mentioned broadband and internet being, you know, like a utility at this yeah. point. Yeah. Um, do you support a municipally owned and operated broadband program?
2: Well, you know, I would want to weight that uh, with the current investments we're seeing with Digital C, as I said before, I don't want to reinvent the will. And we can find a way to kind of connect every disconnected home in the city through a public private partnership. The city should be a key partner and key investor in that approach. But at the same time, uh, there's a lot of work we can do inside the city to better connect neighborhoods. I'll give you an example. Uh, We just approved several years ago, upgrading 61,000 LED streetlights in our city and Councilman McCormick had a recommendation to put a smart cellular device in those streetlights, but this council leadership and mayor said no, and that would have connected 61,000 new homes to high-speed Wi-Fi. So every time we put new fiber or wires on poles or underground, we should be asking the question, can we better connect families and neighborhoods to the internet? And that's going to be my litmus test to think about how we eradicate this crisis long term in the city of Cleveland.
1: Um, so, you know, another infrastructure problem that is facing the city is Cleveland public power, right? There's, uh, you know, multiple power. Everybody's probably had to deal with the power out in one yeah. form or another. Yeah. Uh, you know, the West Side Market lost power, I believe, twice in uh, you know, the past two weeks or a month, somewhere around yeah. that time frame. Uh, You know, at the other end of this issue, you have privately owned First Energy bribing state lawmakers and really working to undermine and overtake Cleveland public power. Uh, So I want to know what you think the best course forward is for Cleveland public power to ensure that, you know, reliable and affordable power comes through the public utility.
2: Well, uh, at the onset, uh, Seth, I want to make something very clear. Uh, I believe myself and Ross DiBello are the only candidates in this race that's not got any money from the George family or first energy. And I think that's important because it's all about who has a credibility on day one to usher in a new vision for Cleveland public power. Now, let me tell you about my vision. Hey, hold
0: next. on, hold on, hold on. Let's explore that a little bit. So, so by bringing that up, yeah. you're, you seem to be saying that first energy has worked to influence the people in power in Cleveland as it seeks to get the unfair competitive advantage with Cpp and that you stand apart from
2: that that's I, that, the reason absolutely you're... that's absolutely okay. i mean I, I just read the article a couple of days ago you guys published about you know tony george getting money from first energy to pursue a strategy to undermine a cpp a lot of money yeah and is... and every i mean and and the public should know who is taking money from the george family and first energy as you think about who has the right kind of credibility and leadership to finally fix CPP. Okay. Right. It's important. Um, And and so my vision, number one, we have to find a way to get out of this 50 year contract uh, with AMP uh, and Prairie State Power Company. Uh, It is the third largest carbon emitter in the United States. It's actually undermining our ability as a nation to achieve uh, the Paris climate goals. So that's the first action. I've already talked to many leaders in this community who are willing to work with the next mayor to pursue every legal strategy to do that. And I believe we're going to have the right political and legal power to do so. But
0: wait, wait, I mean, that that many of the candidates have said that. And the city has a contract. I mean, this is you don't just walk away from a contract. You don't just say. We, we signed a bad contract. We don't want to be in it anymore. The way you get out of contracts is to buy your way out of them. And Cleveland Public Power isn't exactly flush with money. It seems like it's a little too easy to say I would get out of that contract without putting some substance behind how you would plan to do that. Because the people on the other side of the contract are going to say, no way. Yeah. We want the money.
2: Well, uh, I've, I've talked to several experts in the community, and they have told me that there is a legal pathway uh, if you explore issues around waste, fraud, and abuse that would allow potentially for Cleveland to have a legal strategy and a legal pathway uh, to make that contract null and void. And so I want to explore those avenues. Uh, and uh, given the fact that, that because of that contract, rate payers are paying almost two times more than the market rate for electricity, is a shame. And so we need to explore every legal avenue uh, because not doing anything different It's not good enough, in my opinion. So that needs to be our first course of action. And then secondly, uh, we need to do everything in our power to finally move CPP to the green renewable energy economy. Uh, You know, I get excited about, you know, taking advantage of all these abandoned lots we have and powering CPP through solar. You also have the big investment we were saying with the Letco project at Lake Erie. Um, you know and, and making sure that we're shifting and leveraging wind energy as a next power source uh, for the future and you know given our proximity uh, to Lake Erie and, and given our our manufacturing heritage I mean Charles brush was the inventor of, of of the wind turbine and it's important to you know leverage that those those roots in our history we should be a leader in America on embracing the green economy and CPP can be the asset if managed properly uh, for us to do that long term.
0: Okay, so l- let me let me come at it a different way, especially with the, the reference to it being an asset. The last mayor to make a significant investment in CPP was Michael R. White. He mm-hmm. put a lot of money into expanding the system. At the time, people in Cleveland who had CPP had substantially reduced electric rates compared to first energy they 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 strung the wires and things are going well in the intervening 20 years there really has been no investment in it while the city has completely had a different attitude about the water department where it's Mm -hmm. renovated all its water plants and it's replaced lots of water lines invested a billion dollars in these things it hasn't spent much money on CPP at all partly because apparently First Energy was using unfair practices to leave CPP at a competitive disadvantage. If it would have spent the money, it would have had to pass it on to the rate payers, would have made their rates higher than than First Energy. So they couldn't do it. But you now have a decrepit system. It yeah. fails almost every weekend. It People in the city who have CPP complain about it incessantly. So so it's rotting. It, it would require a massive infusion of cash to rebuild that infrastructure. At the same time, you you have a utility that's so small, it has a hard time competing on the open market for energy rates. How Where do you get the money to do all the things you're talking about versus looking at it and thinking, why am I throwing good money after bad? Yeah. Is CPP truly viable? Uh,
2: you know, Chris, I think it is. Um, I think Firstly, you know, if we are able to get out of this 50-year contract and recruit some of those costs, that can be uh, an efficiency for us. Um, but then secondly, as we think about um, the long-term investments to generate long-term revenue, I think it is in you know, pursuing these longer-term strategies in place in, re- in, the, in the renewable space. Now, that's gonna re- re- certainly going to require some long-term uh, capital uh, investments. Uh, And uh, right now, uh, given the fact that President Biden uh, has a very clear strategy to support localities and environmental justice and clean energy, this is the moment now to leverage every resource at the federal and state level to support CPP, but it's going to take a cohesive local strategy to make sure we have the right value proposition to find those investments.
1: Uh, do you think the city should at all entertain selling CPP to private interest if, you know, it continues to fail and uh, that money doesn't realize and, you know, like Chris said, it maybe becomes something that's not viable?
2: No, not at this stage, no.
1: All right. Um, so obviously the big news out of today, anybody who's listened to these, you know, the past Podcast, uh, we didn't have a uh, a prospectus as far as Progressive Field renovations go, yeah. but we do now. We know yeah. that the uh, you know the Guardians or the Indians are going to you know they're asking for public money for uh, Progressive Field renovations, one hundred and seventeen million dollars from um, the city itself, plus some more from the county and the state. Uh, you know, and also kind of looking forward, First Energy Stadium is more than twenty years old, which means the Browns will probably come you know knocking at the door looking for some public money for. Renovations or a new stadium before too long. So, uh, you know, I want to know given the priorities that we've talked about prior to this, do you support using public dollars to help private sports teams with their
2: stadiums? Only with the caveat that we are making sure that those investments uh, can be recruited and leveraged to drive more inclusive economic development across the city. Now, the fact that we have three major league sports teams in the city of Cleveland uh, is a great asset and a great boom uh, to our regional economy. And as I said to you earlier in our conversation set, happy to see that the state also has some skin in the game in this deal as well. Um, And I think long-term we're going to need to have, you know, the state and and others play a larger role in these investments because the city of Cleveland uh, can't continue to, you know, be the only one having a lion's share of the skin of the game in these types of investments. But if we can find a way to raise nearly a half a billion dollars to support uh, progressive field and their renovations, then surely we can also find a way to have the same level of investment to support our neighborhoods. Now,
0: well, well. look, this, the city has had for pretty much the entirety of Frank Jackson's time in office, the tightest budget you can imagine yeah. the tax increase a couple of years ago, gave him some breathing room, now you have the stimulus money, but for most of the time, the city was collecting less money that it was budgeting to spend, and the only reason it was solvent is because it had carried over money from the previous year. So, so saying that if we can find a half billion for this, we can find a half billion for that, is a big step. So, so let me let me pose this in a different in a different frame of reference because yeah. we know what happened four years ago with the arena. The arena became hugely politicized in a mayoral election year, almost didn't happen because of the politicization of it, including one of the very candidates that's in this race. So it's very likely that somebody is going to stand up now and say, whoa, 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 how do you spend 60 million dollars of the city's money or whatever it is on a baseball stadium when 60 million dollars would eradicate half the lead paint in this city and Mm -hmm. and and make lot generations of future children able to thrive without the brain damage that so many generations have suffered and how do you answer that how well, do you it's, how do you it's just easy to make
2: that argument in a political election cycle and as a candidate look i get that but the reality of the situation is is that the city of cleveland is an owner of the asset right and so um so my job as mayor dealing with the practical you know, realization of the fact that we own the asset is, how do I structure the best deal that's done that's going to drive the most inclusive and equitable process for our residents? Now, what I am frustrated about with this deal and what you saw with the quick and Loans deal was that there was no public engagement or no real public process with, 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 with how we spend the money or the voters really didn't get to, get to have a say. Um, instead, these deals get done behind the scenes and then they tell you, okay, now you have to vote for it right? Well, the voters wanted to vote for it uh, uh, several years ago, but didn't get the chance to do so. And so we have to do a better job in this city, not just on uh, the large stadium deal, but for every major economic development project in this community, we need better pathways and better processes to have more public comment and more public engagement to build that trust and build that credibility. That's why so many voters are upset and get frustrated because these deals are shoved down their throats. That's the issue.
0: Yeah, we asked about that today. Did did they learn anything from four years ago and consider bringing in the community? And, and Frank Jackson responded, look, the people who are up here negotiated this deal. We don't negotiate in public. The public process begins when the city and the county councils hold hearings about this. This is when the, the public can come in to make itself heard. Mm-hmm. Um and look, I, I I get it that that there's huge economic development that comes from this. Yeah. There's the psyche of the region for having the team. I can make very strong arguments for keeping the team. My question to you is more about the political crisis that that is likely to come now during this race. Yeah, as people who who want to use this issue as the wedge issue as the lightning rod come out and say kids with brain damage from lead paint versus a bunch of guys chasing around a baseball. Mm -hmm. This is, this is a moment. This is, you know, how do you as a candidate deal with that? How how do you not panic in that crisis? You got people staring you down saying, how dare you spend money on that when these kids are suffering? And your response to that is important.
2: Yeah. I mean, listen, you have to be real and honest and talk straight to voters Um, and talking straight with them is saying, look, We own the asset. As mayor, it's my job to to structure the most equitable and the best deal for for taxpayers. But also, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. And in this moment right now, we can't squander the over half a billion dollars we're getting. And we have to leverage that money to bring back direct investment to our neighborhoods because that's crucial. Uh, But it's also crucial for us to have a thriving central business district. So we can grow our tax base and can grow tax revenues to continue to invest in high quality basic city services. And that's my argument.
1: Well, I'm glad you brought up investment in some of the neighborhoods because there's been a lot of talk about downtown development and, uh, how you know we get out of you know, we're still in the coronavirus pandemic but as we hopefully try to emerge from it, how do we bring back you know business and whatnot but there are a lot of neighborhoods you know throughout the city that have struggled for years with attracting new businesses and residents so what will you do to ensure that there's equitable equitable development opportunities you know in neighborhoods that maybe haven't seen some of the boon that uh, others have
2: well, one of the things that I've been hearing all across the city uh, is the fact that uh, folks believe that we can't continue to have a one size fits all approach to economic development. So what's going to work in Tremont and Ohio city ain't going to always work or probably work at all in Mount Pleasant or Buckeye or Glenville. Uh, And, you know, our, my economic and community development department needs to be structured in a way to handle that nuance. And so for me, you know, one thing I want to do, if we, can find, if we can find a way, right, to raise nearly, you know, $10 billion of economic investment to bring back downtown and bring back Ohio City and Tremont, surely over the next decade, right, with the right partnerships, we can find similar, similar levels of capital to bring back Mount Pleasant, to bring back Glenville, to bring back Clark Fulton by leveraging, on, by leveraging the existing core assets in those neighborhoods, and for me, your main streets determine your side streets. I was talking to Joe Jones a couple couple weeks ago. Did you know that in the Lee Harbor neighborhood, there's not one sit down restaurant, not one. So uh, to me, it's how do we do a better job of making our CDCs, particularly on the east side, an extension of city hall so that we, they can be thoughtful and active and well-resourced partners to drive the right level of investment in those neighborhoods. Um, the other thing I would say as well is how do we uh, truly give residents in those neighborhoods a job they can walk to? Going back to my conversation about the Opportunity Corridor, that should, not, that should not have been used for police headquarters and an asphalt plant, right? It should have been used on focusing on localized industries where we have strengths that can provide real jobs and real material economic benefits to those residents that has to be our strategy for bringing real focused direct investment back to our neighborhoods. You brought up yes. the
0: police station a couple of times and when when that was first announced nobody was was more showing more outrage than we were but then when we drilled into it and the city did a very poor job originally communicating it but when it ultimately did what they explained was that nobody no tenants were interested in moving to opportunity corridor because they felt it wasn't safe so that they took a corner of that corridor that did not have very much value for development and put the police station there hoping it would be a community welcoming place with lots of meeting rooms and also kind of a a a poster for this is a safe area there are police here so so the city i think had the same idea that this isn't a place for a police station But because nobody else was expressing an interest in developing the land, Mm -hmm. they put it there. So you you keep saying, Uh, I I would not have put it there, but had you considered their reasons for doing so? Yeah,
2: look, I I think that's a valid reasoning and valid rationale. I've heard the opposite, where um, there were other other interests, particularly from those who uh, made the initial investment for the city to own that land, and my question is, how aggressive are we in trying to find the right fit for that neighborhood? That's my question. So obviously, I, I've not been privy to the more detailed aspects of the deal. Uh, but for me, it just sends the wrong message to the residents living in that neighborhood. That's the issue I have.
1: Okay. Seth? Yeah. You know, so what what do you think the city's role is in helping, you know, uh, local people create small businesses. You mentioned they're not being a sit-down restaurant in yep. uh, Lee Harvard, I believe. You know w- what is the city's role in helping kind of local minds, just citizens in general, uh, kind of make these small businesses that we know really, you know, are big drivers of the economy in
2: cities. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I am. Um, I truly believe that the role of local government. Uh, and any economic development context is to create the right conditions for good quality job growth and good, inclusive, sustainable economic investment. That That's our goal. So what do those conditions look like? One, you know, we need to go from having an office of no inside City Hall to a culture of yes. Um, that means it shouldn't take you, you know, nearly a year to get a permit filed if you want to start a business or upgrade uh, your, your your home. And right now we're losing many small businesses because... City Hall is not agile or fast or responsive enough. That's, that's, that's one major issue. The other thing I would say is, you know, I talked to many small business owners and what they experienced during COVID-19 was they applied for a grant in April, but didn't get the money until November. That makes no sense. And so how do we have processes and systems that are more responsive and more agile to, to support small businesses because we know that small and medium-sized businesses are the backbone of local economies. And the third thing I would also say is, you know, the city of Cleveland should be a lead investor to support neighborhood-based businesses. Uh, and working with our CDCs, we should be focused on what are the needs, for example, what are the core needs in a Mount Pleasant? And how do we foster small businesses to fit those core economic needs so that we can increase uh, the quality of neighborhood, neighborhood amenities in those respective neighborhoods. That's critical because what you experienced during COVID is that your neighborhood amenities truly matter, right? If you can't, if there's not a, a sit down restaurant to walk to or dry cleaners or coffee shop or grocery store, then how can the city be a lead investor or a lead partner to drive the right kind of investment to attract those types of neighborhood based businesses that are owned by folks living in the neighborhood to create and increase the quality of life in those respective communities.
1: You asked the rhetorical question. I want to ask it back to you (laughs) of how do, you know, I think it would be, I think most people would agree that, Hey, it would be great if you could apply for some kind of permit or you could apply for a business Mm -hmm. license or whatever. And you're, you know, you're approved the next day. It's as, you know, it's as simple as doing anything on your smartphone or something like that. But the fact of the matter is bureaucracy does exist and it does exist for a reason. It doesn't, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean it's efficient. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm asking you, how do you make it a more streamlined uh, uh, situation in City Hall yeah. for, you know, businesses who do want to open
2: up? Well, one of the things I've always learned as, as a business leader is you have to build systems and processes with the customer in mind, and sometimes we don't always do that uh, in city government, particularly in, in a municipal context. So here's one thing I want to do uh, as mayor uh, in my first 100 days: I want to, you know, launch a blue ribbon commission uh, with residents, small business owners, etc., and really analyze what is the the most efficient way that you want to see to get a permit done. Now I'll, I'll give you an example what Akron did, Mayor Horgan, they now have an integrated office of economic and community development. They call it their integrated development department, where it's a one-stop shop to get a permit, to start a business, et cetera. We don't have that right now. Um, And you have to go to four or five departments to get a permit filled if you wanna start a business or build a new development project. It shouldn't be that way. The other thing I would say is that every employee in city hall, should go through rigorous mandatory customer service training so that we should be treating every resident, every business owner with the same level of of excellence and high quality customer service. And it should be embedded in every single department inside the city.
1: So, to, to kind of wrap this up we're we're trying to get inside the uh, the mindset of each of the candidates and, you know, kind of get an idea of what they're looking for in, you know, some of the staffing down at city hall. We know the chief of staff has a very important role. Uh, we're not necessarily looking for who you want to be your chief of staff, but we do want to know who kind of in the community embodies the qualities that you would like in a chief of staff or you know who historically sort of, embodies those qualities that you would like in a chief of staff.
2: Mm-hmm. There, there are a lot of great, um, community and, and business leaders and, and, and that, I, that I look to for advice now, you know, um, someone like a Paul Clark, former PNC, uh, president here, as uh, a trusted advisor, um, someone uh, like, um, Daryl McNair, a trusted business leader in the community, um, but there are also, you know, activists that I rely on for advice. You know, folks like Fred Ward, uh, who has done a lot of great work at the grassroots level in the reentry world. Ronnie Dunn, another good, trusted community leader. And so for me, I want to keep a staff uh, that shares my vision, shares my sense of urgency and passion for social justice. But also, I don't want a yes man or a yes man or a uh, or, or, or yes woman, right? I want a chief of staff that's going to hold me accountable, ask hard questions, but also ask the hard questions of my entire cabinet to make sure that every single day we're holding ourselves accountable, being rigorous in our approach, and working hard to, to give voters confidence that we're doing the hard work of making the city better for everybody.
0: So this cabinet question uh, is, I think, more important in talking to you than to some yeah. of the other candidates because you have no experience in elected office. You have no experience in city hall and you're pretty young. You're not the only candidate that, yeah. that has a low level of experience and you've been doing a lot of uh, shoe leather to get up to speed, But but you do have those obstacles. What do you tell people when they say, hey, you seem like a great guy, but you've yeah. never been in office. You've never done the work, you don't know how it all works, and you're still pretty young and don't have the experience of life?
2: Well, uh, the first thing I would say is no one running for mayor in this election has any experience leading a city out of a pandemic. And the old way of governing cities in this context has been completely disrupted and changed. That's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is that, um, I'm one of the only candidates in this race that has the relationships in the public, private, philanthropic, uh, grassroots, and nonprofit world to truly unify the city and build a cabinet that's reflective of not only that lived experience, but the professional experience to truly do the hard work of reimagining what city Hall and what Cleveland can look like coming out of this pandemic. And then, you know, thirdly, Chris, to your question about Um, I haven't been through a lot of life. Yeah, I'm only 34, but on a personal level, I've experienced the same amount of pain and trauma um, and tragedy that many of our residents are going through right now across the city. I've had to bury too many family members and friends due to violent crime. I know what it's like to not know if we're going to be able to afford to pay rent the next month when you see that eviction notice on your door. Uh, But I also know what it's like to experience success if you work hard, play by the rules, uh, and and show up and treat people with respect. Um, And at the end of the day, the voters of the city want a mayor who shares their pain, but also shares their belief and hope that tomorrow can be better if you have a leader that's going to fight day in and day out to make this city a city of opportunity for everybody. And that's why I believe I'm the right leader for the right time. You have young, dynamic, progressive mayors all across this country, whether it being Birmingham, Alabama, St. Paul, uh, Minneapolis, uh, you name it, that are truly showing that young leaders can lead cities. And I want to make sure that I can add Cleveland to that list. And I believe I'm going to do that come Election Day.
0: All right. Good answer. Clearly, you had put a lot of thought into that one.
2: (laughs) I get (laughs) asked that a lot. I'm sure you know, Chris. It's been a
0: uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, these will be publishing sometime in the next week. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, Justin. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.